This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Tonight's speaker is David Fromm, one of the country's leading conservative commentators. He's a former speechwriter and special assistant to George W. Bush, and he's a senior editor at The Atlantic. Trumpocracy is his ninth book, and in it he examines the first year of the Trump administration. In Trump's demand for public and private flattery, in his expectation that the press be complicit rather than objective, in his paralysis of the state by failing to stop it, as well as filling the ranks of his administration with incompetence and self-seekers, David Fromm sees evidence that, in his words, we are living through the most dangerous challenge to the free government of the United States that anyone alive has encountered. Please join me in welcoming David Trump to politics. Thank you very much. Thank you to the many friends here. What a deep, deep pleasure it is to be at Politics and Prose. Um, like I think most of you, I've spent hundreds of hours usually on the lower level for the children's <laughs> books and cake. Uh, and uh, it's, so, it's, it's nice to be here um, at the microphone um, and, and um, not expected to buy cake with five young people. <laughs> uh, we are also in a central location of this new era. We are paces away from Comet Pizza, where Butler and Miris, please don't laugh, because Butler and Miris, Grace and Mercy, that would have been the site of one of the most horrible massacres of children in American history. And um, I, the gunman, I mean, he had this moment of rationality, maybe even goodness, maybe even something more than that, where he did not commit the terrible crime he had come to commit. But, but for that, uh, this would be a central ground. And it is a, a reminder that lies, disinformation, um, there, this, this is a story that can be written in blood as well as in tears. Um, I don't want to depress you. I think of that, though, every time I drive past that corner. I want to uh, think instead um, about a, st a story that um, Norm Ornstein sometimes tells as a way of understanding a little bit of my bona fides on this book. I mean, I have this problem, which is I, like everyone on television, predicted that Donald Trump would lose the election. And when I go back on television opposite Trumpists, uh, they will throw that in my face and say, why should, why should we listen to you? Because you got the prediction wrong. So Norm Ornstein often tells a joke about a friend of his who was an enthusiastic a gambler on the ponies. Um, and there's a, someone who belonged to his father's generation. In fact, he, uh, the story takes place in the 1950s. Uh, to be precise, on May the 5th of 1955. Uh, that morning, Norm Ornstein's father's friend woke up at 5.55 a.m., took the Fifth Avenue bus down to his office at 55 Pine, where he proceeded to go to work as a bookkeeper balancing the books. The books of the company he was working on did, at lunchtime, ultimately balance at 55,555,555 on each side of the ledger. Broke for lunch, had a ham sandwich and a cup of coffee. That cost $5.55 at the local restaurant, and he realized God was sending him a sign. He went to his bank, withdrew all the cash in his checking account, $555, took a taxi cab to the old aqueduct racetrack, put everything on the fifth horse in the fifth race, who naturally finished fifth. <laughs> um, 
so it's not enough to read the signs correctly. There's a work of interpretation here, and that's what I, I, I got wrong. Um, uh, Trumpocracy is not the story of a man. It's the story of a system of power. Um, one of the problems I have in speaking about this book, and I've been doing a lot of speaking, and thank you for listening, um, has been that whereas in times past, a good book talk, like a well-made man's suit, could go five or six uses between cleanings, um, now the pace of events is such that you, you can never s speak in the same way twice. There is always news. Um, today's news is that the staff secretary uh, of the White House has resigned because of very credible allegations that he physically abused, beat uh, two of his ex-wives and a third woman as well. Um, I think one of the ways to think about it, this is a way of reminding us that the con that attitudes about the sexes are at the basis of the system of power that is Trumpocracy. Um, it is again and again true that you discover that people in this administration, people in this presidency, I don't mean the administration because there are lots of people who are doing the country's work at the Department of Defense and Homeland Security and housing and, well, no, not housing and urban development. <laughs> That's a sinkhole. <laughs> but, but at other places, and they are Schedule C, federal, you know, political appointees, and they are doing proper work, and we thank them for that. And we, um, it, this work has to be done, and it would be worse if the work were not being done. But in the White House, in the presidency, we have seen person after person um, caught in a, a front after a front based on something that is really wrong. Trumpocracy is a system of power. Um, it is not just the lurid personality of the president, it is the connection between this president and the rest of the White House. It is the uh, empowerment, the pact between the president and his party in Congress. Uh, it is the support that is given to the president by Republican donors, many of whom do not like him at all. And it is above all resting on the bond between the president and the largest minority group in the country, which is that compact group of people who like Donald Trump, because, not because of what he is delivering in material terms, but because they see in him um, a reaffirmation of core, their core ideas about who should be on top and who should be subordinated. The essence of Donald Trump, the man, is cruelty. And one of the things that I think that we have to face up to ourselves about the species. You know, the Romans built the Colosseum about the year 70, and it stood, and actually there were regular shows there for the next 400 years. Uh, I, as I understand it, there shows twice, sometimes three times a week. They were almost always sold out. And over, so for 400 years, you could put set bums in seats in this giant auditorium to watch human beings hack themselves to death with swords and clubs. And people came to see it. And that's something we need to face about ourselves. Um, we are not as, some are horrified by cruelty, but some are fascinated by it. Um, and some are enthralled by it, and some are energized by it. And that is the spectacle that Donald Trump has offered the country. I want to talk today, because I'm going to speak very briefly and then take a lot of questions, but I know this is a very energized crowd. I want to talk not about all the bad things that you all know, and many of you know them better than me, but about the signs of hope that I see springing up about us. Because the biggest surprise to me in the um, tour I've done to promote the book um, has been this ex the seeing something that I, I believed in but hadn't seen before, which is, is this extraordinary level of social energy and social mobilization. Um, people say, what can we do in a time like this? Well, you're here. You're here. And, and you're not here to hear me. 
uh, because believe me, I've been in the store a lot and no one was, <laughs> nobody particularly cared what I had to say about anything. Uh, you're here because of the times, you're here because of each other, because that you draw strength from each other at a time like this. That Franklin Roosevelt spoke of the courage of national unity. And we are building toward a kind of sense of, it's still very contested, but at least three-fifths of the nation is building toward a spirit of unity about what is acceptable and what is not. So here are the signs of hope that I see in this presidency. The first is um, Donald, we have lived for a long time in frozen politics. If you imagine a Rip Van Winkle in the year 1990, or a time traveler who can go forward in time or back. Uh, the time traveler steps forward in time 25 years from 1990 to 2015, rubs the sleep out of his eyes, and asks who's running for president? Bush and Clinton. What are they talking about? Iraq and healthcare and the deficit. That doesn't sound like anything has changed. Oh, by the way, who's the biggest jerk in Washington? Newt Gingrich? Uh, nothing's changed. <laughs> Nothing has changed. Um, the country's changed. In 1990, there's no internet. In 1990, China is poor. Uh, in, in, in 1990, the Cold War is just barely behind us. The country has changed, but the politics are frozen. Now imagine that time tra traveler going backwards 25 years from 1990. It's 1965. The cities are ablaze with riots. The most powerful man in Washington is the head of the AFL-CIO. Uh, that, that, that was a trade union association that uh, <laughs> it organized workers and helped them. Get, anyway, people here may remember. Uh, followed by J. Edgar Hoover. Um, and there were conservative segregationist Democrats. There were liberal Republicans. It was a different world. In a dynamic country like this, things do not stay frozen normally the way they were in politics between 1990 and 2015. Whatever else Donald Trump has done, he has thrown the jigsaw puzzle of American politics up into the air, and a new pattern will land, a pattern that maps better to the country than the frozen politics of the past quarter century, where the same people, often literally the same people, but the same configurations of people talked about the same things in the same way, even as the world wildly changed around them. Donald Trump has forced this country to confront um, a series of issues that it was easy for people in the privileged or successful parts of the country to ignore this terrible drug crisis um, that, has left, that has killed more Americans now than the Vietnam War, uh, what is happening to, to uh, middle class wages, the, uh, this, the crisis of despair and loneliness. If you do polls, I mean, I've become interested in polls that ask questions like, um, do you have a lot of close friends? And that is like a straight line drop from 1970 to now. I, I, I saw a poll the other day that asked the question, have you been out? Inside the home in the past 24 hours. And the proportion of Americans who say no, it's on a, it's on a rocket rise. That in, in a country that is more alienated, it's easy for those of us who live in cities, who are connected, who feel a sense of purpose, not to see this. Donald Trump has forced us to see it. And that's a gift. Donald Trump has uh, changed, has forced people with I, political affiliations that look increasingly to me old-fashioned. What we, used to, uh, what we used to call the left, what we used to call the, the right, to take reckonings of ways in which our politics had been, uh, have become obsolete. I venture that in a place like this, if I were speaking four years ago, um, I would have encountered a lot of resistance and maybe more if I had said that people like Julian Assange and Edward Snowden are not heroes. Uh, today, people understand what they were doing and who they were doing it for. And they understand that threats to your country come not only in the form of rockets and tanks, but also in the forms of subversion and espionage and 
these new kinds of cyber attack, and that those who stand on the frontiers of the country to guard it against these clandestine attacks are defending you just as much as soldiers, sailors, and Marines are defending you. Um, and we have seen, I think, uh, an awakening on the liberal side of the spectrum of an awareness of the importance of this kind of, this form of national defense. Meanwhile, on my side of the political spectrum, um, we've had a vice of being kind of understanding of the little unfairnesses of life as, as just part of the price of being human, the bumps along the road. But Donald Trump has taken all of those casual cruelties and the casual um, brutishness and, and the disregard for women and the uh, indifference to people with problems and, um, and has taken it and put it on a jumbotron uh, in front of the nation, and a jumbotron that is on display 24 hours a day. Uh, illuminated by this, the push tweets of the most tweeted man on earth. Look at it, look at it, look at it. Do you like it? Do you like it? And a lot of people who would have, when it was on a very small screen said, meh, say, I, I don't like that at all. That's horrible to see. I won't put up with it anymore. Uh, John, one of the gifts of Donald Trump is he's told, he's made America's friends around the world who often have a difficult relationship with the United States understand what it means when America steps away from its leadership role, when America says, okay, we are going home, we are going to be inward, and how our friends around the world are left alone. What a terrible time to be a citizen of South Korea. What a terrible time to be a citizen of Estonia. Uh, you had protection that you once counted on and that is now, now looked um, like something you can't count on. Um, and you are suddenly forced to confront a world in which its meaning and its structure have been, have been kicked away. A gift, um, but out of that, they get the understanding of realizing um, there was a world order and, that backed by the United States, and it did do mostly good, and we need it back. And maybe if we can get through this passage together, that we and the Americans together can build something new in which the United States finds, again, a constructive role for itself as the undergirder of this world order. Um, I think that I see a, a, a gift in Donald Trump in that it's so often said that presidents make us appreciate the qualities they, they lacked. Um, that, um, you know, uh, Barack Obama, for whom I did not vote, he had many good qualities. But um, the people who loved him best said, you know, that the, the first hour of an Obama analysis was fascinating. Uh, uh, the second, still very, very interesting. Uh, but by the time you got the sixth or seventh hour of that, in, you know, powerful analytic intelligence, you know, somebody here needs to make a decision. Um, and uh, so we have now the opposite: someone who makes decisions um, on the toilet um, <laughs> without any information. What we ha we have seen, what Donald Trump has forced us to confront, is the importance of our mutuality. Um, our, our common identity as citizens, of kindness, um, of respect for each other, um, and a recognition of the, the preciousness, not just of some, but of all. You know, one of the th reasons I think I've called this book The Corruption of the American Republic is because it's so many people are implicated in what has gone wrong, not just Republican members of Congress, but so many more. Um, it's a crisis not just of this republic, but of democracy worldwide, because you see across the developed world, this democratic recession that began in about 2005 has reduced the number of democracies and ch turned countries like Hungary into outright authoritarian states, have put countries like Poland on the downward path, have seen the uh, percentage of the vote that goes to the um, neo-fascist party in France doubled between 2002 and 2017 that, is 17, that has seen a neo-fascist party emerge as the second largest party in the Netherlands, that has seen 
this authoritarian populism re-enter the German parliament, federal parliament, for the first time since the war, um, something that leaves, makes no one comfortable, Germans least of all. Um, but this, in this global crisis of democracy, we also have to confront something about this country. Um, democracy is not a light switch that is on or off. Uh, it is not true that if you, that automatically, if your democracy begins to deteriorate, the next thing you have is a democratic breakdown like the 1930s. That doesn't happen again. Nothing will happen again like the 1930s. But what we are seeing is this big question about the country, and here's where I'll end and throw it open to your questions. Um, this country is changing very fast in a way that has left many people stranded. Um, it is becoming more ethnically different at a time when relations between groups are more contested. We have seen a breakdown in relationships between men and women. If you look at people under 30, not only are fewer of them married or living with a person of the opposite sex than ever before in the history of numbers, um, or recorded numbers, but if you ask the question, have you had sexual, a sexual relationship with somebody in the past three months, that too is at the lowest point since before the sexual revolution began, that we have this crisis of, of aloneness in America, and I talk about that in the book. But people are responding to this, or some people, some of our fellow citizens, um, are responding to it by redefining what it means to be American in a way that it excludes a third of the country. And they are defined, they're creating a new concept of democracy, where what matters is not, do you have a majority of the vote, do you have a majority of the nation, but do you have a majority of that part of the nation whose grandparents belong to the American ethnic majority? And that is how democracy, that is how politics is legitimated, by whether you have a majority of the proper Americans, without regard to all of the so-called proper Americans, without regard to all of the others. Um, that is going to, whatever happens to Donald Trump, that idea is going to be a lasting idea for the 21st century. That, that, and it will become, I think, it has already become more explicit than ever before, it will become more explicit again. And the reaction, the defense against uh, Trumpocracy, the system of power, is for people of goodwill to insist on the broadest possible conception of citizenship, the broadest co possible conception of rights, based on a kind of a new understanding of mutuality, a new re reaffirmation of the centrality of the bond of citizenship, not ethnicity, not religion, um, but that, the, the belonging to that American community precisely because it's kind of arbitrary who is and who isn't. Um, it, it, you take all, you remove all of the things that have, that have been familiar to the human animal brain and substituted something higher, a concept of citizenship, of mutual, of belonging because of the desire to belong and the willingness to share and protect your fellow members of your national community. Let me pause there, take questions. Thank you for your attention. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you for your talk. I um, recall sitting in this room several years ago listening to Lewis Lapham uh, talking, I don't remember what book he was promoting, but he was tossing out rather casually, I thought, this idea of the end of democracy. And I remember sitting here seeing, being sort of flabbergasted at the idea that that could even be in the realm of possibility. So during the q and I asked him what he thought most likely would replace it, and he said some form of oligarchy, possibly. My question has to do with the fact that I think a lot of people um, adopt their polit political positions fairly young and hold on them hold on to them through their life. So my question has to do: What do you think of this poll, recent poll, 
where two-thirds of millennials have um, indicated that it is not essential yeah. to live in a democracy. That's the Yasha Monk survey I cited in the book. Yasha Monk is a German political scientist now at Harvard who got a big grant to ask people across, I think, a dozen and a half countries, is it essential to live in a democracy? And among people born in the 1930s, something like 90% said yes. And among people born since 1980, uh, something like 25% said yes. And he, just because the results were so incredible, he asked a follow-up question because one of the things about polling is you can't assume that the people you asked the question to understood your question in the same way that the people who wrote the question did. So he, he did a couple of follow-ups. And one of them was, well, how would you feel about a government led by a strong man who could cut through ordinary politics? And he found that that was the opposite, that whereas people born in the 1930s almost 100% said no, that among millennials, again, about a, um, a, a big chunk, not a majority, were prepared to say yes, and rising over time. So what's going on there? Um, I, part of it is just distance from World War II and, um, and the Cold War, uh, and a lack of remembrance of what non-democracy looked like. Uh, you can imagine it looks like a charismatic leader if you don't remember the last time we tried it that way, um, we as a species. Uh, but I think it's also this, that um, for the 30, 40 years after World War II, democracy was not just a system for protecting citizen participation and citizen rights. It also delivered an endless stream of miracles to ordinary people. Um, people who had been hungry during the Depression walked into their kitchen and there was a refrigerator. And in the driveway was a car. And there was a vacation. Um, and you could afford to go somewhere away from home. Um, and you had a pension and health benefits. And it worked. It was magic. Uh, and even if you didn't quite understand how it worked, you could certainly reckon with the results. And then it stopped working. And you still had the right to participate in protection of your rights. But a lot of people were looking for, where's the magic? Where did it go? And for people born later, that you can see that that's true. Um, I think my answer to the Lewis Lapham question would be to understand um, democracy is not a light switch that is on or off. It's a modern dimmer. It's more and less. Um, and what is not is when we, as we lose it, we will not see it suddenly collapse. We'll for a long time be uh, arguing over whether anything has changed at all. Um, but what we will see is somewhat fewer get to vote. Uh, one of the things that I think modern authoritarian leaders have understood was that, the, 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 among other things, the authoritarians in the 1930s, they just were uneconomical. They overdid it. Um, you don't need to cancel elections. You can get the same result by identifying the six points of people whom you don't want to vote and finding one some way to stop them. And then you continue with the election. You don't have to um, suppress the press. You know, let the New York Times and the Washington Post print whatever they like. Their, their readers you know, are not important to your project anyway. Um, go to Facebook um, and manipulate that. And if you can manipulate that, and that is certainly what goes on in, even not only in Hungary, but even in Russia, where until extremely recently, the prestige written press was allowed to be more or less free, but television was controlled. Um, so I, I don't know what to call this new system. Where it's established, I call it repressive kleptocracy. Uh, whereas, where it's rising, I call it authoritarian populism. Probably we need a jazzier name than any of that. But, it, but it's a real thing. Yes, sir, over on this mic. Is, is there a second mic? Yes, th oh, thank you. Okay, all right, so my question is somewhat two-part, but um, so, so it seems as though that the ecosystem for which this, you know, us versus them is kind of getting wider, is that there are more people who think about 
them versus us. And I mean, I use the example of, for instance, what with this whole Nunez memo, okay? Mm -hmm. There's been this back and forth, and even though you had, like, you know, the National Review, they did their big, you know, against Trump, you know, thing before yeah. the election, but I'm seeing, like, you know, like, like quite a few of their, you know, top editors and writers were, like, you know, in support of the Nunez memo. Mm -hmm. And I'm even seeing, like, you know, there's like that double speak that Trump does that you're seeing like some of the Republican um, congressmen are doing that too in terms like, oh, well, you know, I support the institution of the FBI, but, you know, we really got to do something about, you know, we really got to do something about, you know, the way that this thing was, was carried out. So I, I'm just saying that, you know, even as a liberal or as a conservative, if you want to get to more of a, of a, of a we, it seems as though... It is so strong out there. This, this, no, yeah. it's, it's it's us versus them. Is that how do we get back to we and us? That that's such a powerful point. I, I totally agree with you. Here's a something else I worry about with the, the Nunes memo. It's really sh shone a lot on something. One of the themes of the book is, even if you, the United States gets through all of this more or less happily, there are going to be some enduring consequences. And the Nunes memo and what's happening at the House Intelligence Committee symbolizes this. Um, the United States has spent the past half century putting tighter civilian and congressional control over the national security state, over the military, over um, the FBI and the CIA. And that has rested a lot on the willingness of those extremely powerful and secretive agencies to work with Congress. Because they went through the tremendous scandals of the 1970s, and out the other end of it, they realized we will be more legitimate and more secure if we keep Congress in the loop, and not just report to the executive, but report to a House and Senate Intelligence Committee. And when those, for the half century that those committees were established, they were a special prize in Congress. You didn't just, not just anybody got on those committees. It was a re form of recognition for the most public-spirited, most intelligent, most hardworking, most conscientious members of both houses. And they, by and large, they honored there are very few leaks out of those committees. I, don't, I, don't, I can't remember one. Maybe there's been one. I can't remember. They have kept secrets. And the result has been the agencies have shared information. Um, what Nunes did was a breach of the basic logic of how those committees are supposed to work. You have to ask yourself, if you're a younger person at the FBI or CIA watching this, you think, can I share with Congress the way we did for the past 50 years, or do we need to rethink that? Those agencies are always trying to slip the leash away from civilian control. You know, ask yourself this. Um, the President's daily brief, how informative do you think that is today? I mean, that under past presidents, usually three, four, sometimes five people would see it. The President would see it, usually the Vice President, always the National Security Advisor, always the Chief of Staff, um, in the Bill Clinton administration, the First Lady saw it. That was and a redacted version was shared with former presidents. Um, but the former presidents didn't get the full high test stuff. Um, so four or five people. Donald Trump is apparently sharing his brief with 14 people. And he's told the agencies, I want one page and lots of pictures. <laughs> and they know that if there's anything really spicy in it, he will blurt it to the first visitor to the Oval Office he wants to impress. So. He wants you to leave stuff out. He's asking you to leave stuff out. Uh, it's a lot of work to put the stuff in together. Too many people are seeing it, including the president's son-in-law, who you, you have a lot of questions about if you're a member of an intelligence agency. I bet it's become a lot less informative than ever before. How do you make it informative again? Because these agencies don't, they have a lot of secrets, and it's really on them whether they share.
Can everyone hear? I'm sorry, my, I'm, I'm getting a warning that, okay. Okay, thank you then. Um, yes, sir. Hi, I'm an American, uh, high school American history teacher. And until recently, I think I could have offered up an explanation of Republicans and conservatives with which a Republican or conservative would have agreed. And I guess recently I'm flummoxed by the direction of the party. And so my question to you is, what is or may emerge as sort of the North Star of modern Republican conservatism after yeah. the turmoil we're seeing now? Yeah. Um, I, I see three futures for the Republican Party. Um, the most attractive is also the least likely. Um, and that is that out of um, defeat and the need to reorganize and reconnect with new kinds of voters, um, it emerges as a modern, right-of-center, business-oriented party, um, like the British Conservatives or the German Christian Democrats or the Australian Liberals. Um, you know, every society has those who have more to lose than to gain from politics and those who have more to gain than to lose, and both are entitled to representation. Um, you may identify with one side or the other, but you recognize that the other exists. Um, and the people who have more to lose than to gain want a political party, um, and they have one in almost every democracy. Historically, the Republican Party was that here, and it may go back to being that. Um, that party would be radically de-ethnicized. You know, the, the, the question, um, the question about the, the weird thing about the Republican Party of, say, 10 years ago uh, was um, why that people who you th might think would vote Republican because of their interests didn't because they felt insulted. Um, that, you know, why is an Indian American who owns 10 hotels, like, why isn't he in the Republican Party? I mean, like, he just wants you to speak politely to him. And then he's got a lot in common with the historical vote winner, the lesbian partner in an accounting firm. Why isn't she, you know, with her high income, a, a Republican? Or the, um, you, know, prof you know, professionals of different ethnic backgrounds. Uh, you know, why aren't they? That was always the question. I mean, it was the, the, I mean you're not, you don't, no party should get 100% of the voter wanted. There are a lot of people who shouldn't be. High school history teachers probably are not going to be Republicans. Uh, <laughs> but that's why you have competitive elections. Um, so that's one future. A, a second future is that the party continues on the path it was before Trump, and that is a highly economically individualistic party, very plutocratic, that can appeal to, that cannot win a national majority, um, that has a lot, some ethno-nationalism in, in it, just enough to energize a base, not enough to be a majority, um, and that that party then becomes competitive mostly at the um, state level and as a party of Congress where it basically exercises a veto over the majorities that Democratic presidents can summon. And that was the path the party's been on since, you know, from 2010 and, until now, a veto party that would backed by 43, 44% of the country. But there's another future that Donald Trump has pointed to, and that is the, the, and the future you see of, of the right parties in Europe, of, of an eth, a party of ethnocultural assertion um, by, down, by less educated white Americans backed by the country's plutocratic elite. Um, and that's the path it's on now. Um, and that path may work politically, but it doesn't work as a way to govern the country, and it doesn't work, and, and it, although it pushes the Democrats, by the way, in, danger, in directions that are also very dangerous, because one of the questions that doesn't get it asked enough, and maybe this is a crowd to offer this hard teaching to, that the Democrats have two futures ahead of them. One is they become, they become the Eisenhower party, the party of the big American, you know, middle, you know, 
unlike Eisenhower, slightly lift, listening to the left, but that you know adds to its traditional base um, uh, the people who voted for Romney but not for Trump. I talk in the book about what happened in the state of Pennsylvania, where Trump and um, Pat Toomey both got 1.2 million votes, almost exactly the same number of votes. But, tr but Toomey ran 200,000 votes ahead of Trump in the well-to-do suburbs of Philadelphia, and Trump ran 200,000 votes ahead of Toomey in uh, the, the deindustrialized areas around Pittsburgh and mining country. And those 200,000 votes um, are probably more available than ever to a Democratic candidate, especially the women. Um, and you can imagine such a Democratic Party, but you can also imagine a Democratic Party that looks at what is, that follows the same pressures that has taken the Labour Party in England, where it is going, or in Britain, um, and becomes a party of ethnic identity, of, of its own kind, it more enthralled to its activist base, um, more energized. And I think that's the way, at least, the, Democrat, the 2020 primary candidates are betting the party is going. And although that may possibly work, I don't think it will, but it may possibly, it's again, no basis to govern the country. Yes, over there. I'm a little afraid my question uh, might seem unrelated to the rise of Trump and his electoral victory by a tiny margin, but I think it is related. How much do you think the rise of this nasty populism in the United States and even more in Europe is due to the unwillingness of responsible uh, leaders in both parties to consider the threat of Islam to Western values? Well, I think uh, uh, the failure to cope with mass migration um, is, an, uh, is the proximate cause of Just the rise. Just this one exception. What is that? But, 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 I, uh, but the, the reason we are so sensitive to Muslims in particular um, is that, that countries feel that they've lost control of their borders. Um, and where countries feel they have lost control of their borders, you get these populist reactions. I mean, if I were giving this talk in 2014, and I was asked, which are the countries that have been least susceptible to this kind of movement? I would have said Canada, Australia, and Germany. And then Germany had this huge influx in 2015, and suddenly the alternative for Germany, um, their version of this kind of politics, is in the national par parliament. Um, had the board, I mean, as a phrase I often use is if um, liberals insist that only fascists will patrol the, bo the borders, then the voters will hire fascists to do the job that liberals won't do. Uh, but I, I think it's an illusion to believe that there is something about Muslims as Muslims that makes Muslims inherently it's dangerous. It's the ideology. It's, it's not the people, per se. Uh, it's the ideology, the belief system. You know, one of the things I, I, I believe about all religions is it is re really kind of amazing our ability to make to model God upon ourselves. If we want to be violent, we will find, whatever our tradition, a lot of opportunities, a lot of instructions to be violent. If we want to be kind, we can find it. Um, and you know, religion is a very plastic thing. And I, mean, I speak here as someone who, uh, who is Jewish, that um, for much of our history, that we found a more comfortable refuge in the Islamic world than in the Christian world. That ceased to be true. Uh, it became more comfortable. Um, and there are things that are going on in the Arab Muslim world in particular because, you know, the, I mean, the largest Muslim country on earth is Indonesia where there is very little of this kind of radicalism. Um, but there are things that are going on in the Arab Muslim world that are very concerning. Uh, but if, country, if citizens feel that their borders are protected, um, that they, they react differently than if they feel their borders are not protected. Uh, so first off, I just want to say it's always great to see a fellow Canadian down here. Thank you. Um, and uh, so my question, you're a 
senior editor at The Atlantic. And earlier this week... Well, how about more Canadian coverage? That's what you're... <laughs> <laughs> the dairy board does not get nearly enough attention. Um, there, there was an article this week from Jonathan Rauch and Benjamin Witte yes. called Boycott the Republican Party. Um, and they're both you know, very nonpartisan, but the idea was to deal with Trumpism in the short term, um, people should be voting down ballot across in every office well, against Republicans for Democrats. So just as a Republican, I wanted to know how you felt about that. Well, it's funny you raise that because uh, I was on a panel with Jonathan and Ben this morning. Jonathan is about my oldest surviving friend. I have, we have been friends since the fall of 1978. Um, he would wince if I gave the actual numbers, but it, there's just no blinking it. It's true. Um, and Ben is a friend of long standing. So here's what I would say to that. And I said, I said this is what I said to them. Um, uh, I, I understand why they are led to feel the way they do. And they are both, neither of them is a very partisan person. And uh, Jonathan is always very insistent that George H.W. Bush was the greatest president of his lifetime and the one he voted for most enthusiastically. Um, but I have a one-word answer, and that is California, um, that America's most dynamic and wealthy state is a one-party ecosystem. Um, and that, even if you're a liberal, and especially if you're not, is, is not good for anybody. So when people say, why are you, if I lived in California, where my two older kids, I mean, we may end up there, um, uh, I would be voting for Republicans for state assembly and state senate for the familiar reasons. You know, more, you know, I, I prefer a government that offers uh, lower taxes and fewer services. Um, so there are a lot of places at the local level where, in fact, one of the ways, we, one of the reasons we're in trouble, you, you, you all know the saying, all, po all politics is local. But um, a couple of years ago, political scientist whose name I forgot wrote a book called All Politics is National. And because he was observing this, the rising correlation between votes in state races and the approval rating in the state of the president. Mm -hmm. So I, you like the president, you don't like the president. Why does that determine who should be the head of the S Nebraska assembly? Um, but in fact, it was rising. And w I think one of the ways to be healthier is for people to affirm you know, the distinctly federal nature of the American system. Mm -hmm. And uh, it doesn't do for, the, for Democrats to have two-thirds of the seats in both houses of the California legislature, that is not healthy. One thing it does, it leads to the replacement of party politics by factional politics, which are always more secretive. Uh, yes, over there. Okay. So, do you think that gerrymandering is a big factor in, I guess, the kind of recalcitrant attitudes in yeah. our representatives or you, yeah okay gerrymandering sure doesn't help um, but in in the list of American of it's one of the imp important things and um, the ills of the American <laughs> legislative system along with um, the increasing difficulty that people find in casting a vote in in many states um, also um, with the the rising role of money although I probably have a different view of that than most people in this room do um, I see the rising ro um, role of money in politics not as a cause of the, our problems, but as a symptom. You know, in, in, we know very little about how elections were financed before 1975, and we know almost nothing about how elections were financed before 1930. It was until the 70s, it was legal to give campaign donations in cash. And that is how Lyndon Johnson financed much of his career, and we have no idea who gave him that cash. But, but one thing we do know, which is that, that elections just used to cost a lot less. And the reason they cost so much less is because even if you had a lot of money, what would you do with it? You could buy radio and TV ads, but when it came time to get voter, to register voters and get voters to the polls, you relied on 
unions. If you're a Republican, you relied on women from the Protestant churches. Uh, you relied on other kinds of associations. You didn't have to, they did it for nothing. Um, or they did it because it was part of their identity, because they belonged to a group. Um, what the Koch brothers, when they spend all those hundreds of millions of dollars, they're spending them not on advertising, but on replacing the organizational work done by institutions that just don't mobilize people anymore. Um, if you had those kinds of healthy, that healthy associational life, uh, you wouldn't have to spend money to get people to the polls. People would do it for their neighbors, for their partisan reasons. The collapse of the parties um, and the rise of these, these, this massive expenditure is a consequence of the weakening of the associations of Americans one to another. So I don't see a ready solution to all of that. I mean, the gerrymandering problem on its own is a pretty easy problem to imagine a fix for. You know, you, you say you pass an amendment to your state constitution that says the seats will be allocated by a board of retired judges. Um, and that's, that's easy to fix. But um, the obstacles to people voting and above all the collapse of associations that make money indispensable to getting people to vote, that's not so easy to fix. Yes, ma'am. As a journalist and as a former White House message crafter, what do you make of the performance of the current White House press office in their role of normalizing many of the extraordinary things that are coming out of this administration? For example, most recently, glossifying the treason comments yes. as a joke, and also the irony that it's a woman who's out there up front defending him seemingly with gusto. I watch this show, as, as you do, and think, <laughs> think, you know, you could get a job at some nice tobacco company somewhere. <laughs> you, you don't have to do this. Um, <laughs> I, I think a lot about I think a lot about the White House staff and what different people do because their roles there, um, their role there are situations which are genuinely tragic, where we need to have a national security council we really do, um, and people have to undertake it and yet it's also inevitably true that if you take it you will be corrupted, and there's something very tragic I mean like it's like a existentialist novel with people have to sign up. And even the people with the best will have to sign up and accepting that they will be worse people at the end of the experience than they were. And, but, uh, but, th but there are lots of jobs that you don't have to do at all. Nobody, you know, somebody has to be um, you know, a, a Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian Affairs. Um, and and we are worse off when there isn't such a person. But uh, you know, White House can function without a press secretary and no particular person. The country's not losing anything you know, if you don't. Um, and you look at it and say, why, why are they doing it? I mean, the, I, I, in the book I talk about, I have a debate with Elliot Cohen that I reproduce, not a debate, but a discussion with Elliot Cohen, who many of you may know. And we talk about this question of should you serve the president in a personal capacity, not in a national security capacity. And I, 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 my reaction to that is, you know, maybe. If you, get, if you get the call, maybe you should consider it. But you should understand that you will be put into a position where you are asked to do something wrong. That's almost inevitable. And you have to know yourself and know whether you will be able to say no. And then you have to consider this, that if the person hiring you were as certain as you that you would say no to the wrong thing, you would probably not be offered the job. <laughs> yeah. I apologize in advance for my lighthearted question. We can, we can use one. No, can, bless can, you. Can you reflect a little bit on your relationship with the Mooch? And uh, also, also, did you know that he went to Harvard? 
you know, it, it, one of the things I, I you saw this, you know, when he said that, one of the things I did not say, and I, I'm I, I'm not sorry about this, it was, it was an inside joke, was um, I think you mean to say you went to law school in Cambridge. Um, okay, so he's my new best friend. Um, okay, I, yeah, it's a, j a jokey question, but let's, let's say something serious about this. I mean, it is amazing that this person had a high-level job in the White House, even for a very short time. Um, that just, and you see this again, I mean, with, with the, the, the much more serious and more terrible story of the staff secretary, that, that the absence of self-command, uh, that you have people in the White House who could not get a visitor's pass. I mean, literally, Seb Sebastian Gorka had an open arrest warrant from the gun government of Hungary and for a gun violation. And this guy is walking around in the presence of the president, someone who has a, you know, and he has, by the way, some gun violations in this country. That, uh, any other, even one strongly committed to gun rights, would say, you know, a person with a problem with guns shouldn't be close to the president. <laughs> um, so uh, so that, that was an extraordinary thing. Um, you know, the question, I, I asked him a question about his financial dealings. And basically, if you're asked a question, you know, you, you've done some things and they, they look kind of dubious. Um, explain why. Uh, if you're talking to someone who is a sort of a normal person, they would be able to n bury you with their information. Because I, I know I've done a little bit of research, as you would understand before I ask the question, but obviously he knows a hundred times more about his own company than I do. He should have been able to crush me. Um, and the fact that he lost control of himself, I think, answered the question in the eyes of all of America. Obviously, this is a very sensitive, sensitive subject. Um, on the other hand, uh, look, here's, the, here's on the plus side. Um, I'm not a housewife. I'm not a real housewife or a phony housewife or any kind of housewife. I'm not a celebrity. To be a, a, the recipient of a TMZ rant, that is something that I never thought would happen to me. <laughs> and, and, and I owe that to the mooch. <laughs> uh, good evening. Speaking earlier, you mentioned in the last page of your book that one of the antidotes to the Trump movement is conciliation. That's one of the words yeah. you use, conciliatory. And so far, we've seen on both sides of the aisle, Democrats have the resistance movement, Senate Democrats have overall, despite changing today, yeah. typically been recalcitrant to anything this administration has wanted. So my question really is, does the antidote to Trump conciliation come from both parties, or is it one that can be resolved by one partisan or one party or the other? I was thinking more of the attitude of, of individual people. Um, and that, um, so in Congress, Congress has its own rhythms and its own dynamics. I mean, I think it was incredibly foolish of the Democrats to uh, be drawn into the government shutdown. And when they were, the trap that was so obviously waiting for them instantly sprang. So they shut down the Congress for over two issues, children's health and DACA. Um, the Republicans instantly surrendered on children's health, health as if the Democrat, as they you could have predicted if you thought about it for even two minutes in advance, or as if you were not driven by your 2020 um, primary competitors. And so the Democrats shut down the government for illegal aliens. And that was the story that the Republicans wanted from the very start and the story that they got. Um, so that's a story about just having a little bit of, of prudence and not being enthralled to your 2020 candidates in your Democratic base. But the conciliation means more, I think, um, uh, you know, as the, we have completed the recovery from the crisis of 2009, um, we live in a country in which, in the successful parts of the country, life is really kind of amazing. Um, and there are opportunities, and there's work, um, and the food's great, um, and uh, until we get submerged beneath the onrushing oceans, um, you know, or, like, the, the, the cities are they're incredibly safe. Um, you know, it's a, it's a striking thing that, uh, that that places like New York and Boston and Washington, to a lesser degree, have become so much safer 
than the heartland of America. I mean, I was, I was in Louisville, Kentucky the other day, and they have a crime rate something like 14 times higher than that of New York City. Um, that, it's, it's an incredible, uh, an incredible thing. And of course, the drug, drawback epidemic is centered in the middle of the country and, and less in the coast. Um, so the conciliation means that the advantaged parts of the country need to understand what is going on uh, in the rest of the country. Um, and just generally, that should be our approach to politics, a, a, a story I often think about in terms of political communications. Those of you who remember the 1992 election may remember the uh, third debate between Bush, Perot, and Clinton, the town hall debate moderated by Carol Simpson, then at a a ABC. Um, they took questions, and the, the question that sort of settled the election was, the, uh, this is the I feel your pain moment. Um, a woman was called on, an older woman, obviously not very well educated, and obviously extremely nervous at being on television for the one and probably only time in her life. And with a quavering voice, she asked, I'd like to ask each of the candidates how you have been personally affected by the deficit. Panic. <laughs> Right? <laughs> no one's personally affected by the deficit. And I, I'll cut the story short. Bush flubs the question. Perot gives a characteristically insane answer. And, <laughs> and then Bill Clinton st steps forward with that huge body of his and, sa and says to the woman, I will answer your question, but first I have a question for you. How have you personally been affected by the deficit? And as she answers, it becomes clear that either she forgot or else she never knew the difference between the deficit and the recession that was taking place at the time. And once Bill Clinton understood what she was asking about, 400 feet into center field. Um, but it's important to remember that, that the language of politics is a second or third language for most of your fellow citizens. That it is hard for them to tell you what is on their minds. And they use words that they've heard from other people. They're trying to express themselves in ways that they hope will be intelligible to others. And or, or, and when they use their private language, their own language, it often seems rough or crude or insulting or insensitive. And so the challenge for those with advantages in, in life is to hear the question behind the question and to be able to understand what people are really concerned about with a language that doesn't come easily to them. Thank you. So I just want to say we have uh, three people behind me and two more standing over here, and then we'll have to call it okay. after that. Thank you. From all Thank you. I was wondering if you have suggestions on how we could find um, conservatives who don't identify with Trumpism um, so that we could form communities in person, actually, because yeah. I think associations are broken. Yeah. And um, not focused on politics, but protecting rule of law and our norms. Um, that's a great question. I think to some degree it is happening. I mean, there are such discussion groups. I, I'm, I'm a participant in a couple of them uh, here in Washington. Um, Right now, Trump has the glamour of apparent success, and that is especially true after the passage of the tax cut. Um, if he looks a little less glossy, I think you'll hear from more of these people. Um, but the place where the work can really be done most fruitfully is at, at the state level, um, and uh, where um, I think it, it's possible, um, especially in um, the one-party states like California, that I think that we're going to need to see work between reform-minded Democrats who are not Tammany Hall people um, and their Republican opposite numbers to try to say how do you, in a state where things are as lopsided, how do you deliver good, honest government and make sure that elections <coughs> remain competitive, not for the sake of the Republicans, but for the sake of, of, of those states? Yes, sir. Uh, David, thank you for coming tonight. Um, so I have a question about symptoms and causes. 
Uh, so, you know, we've talked about Trump being kind of a, a, a symptom and not so much a cause yeah. of, the, of the current system. We've talked about gerrymandering being kind of a symptom and not a cause or, or dark money being a symptom and not a cause of the system. As a student of politics and history, can you talk a little bit about what some of these causes are, might be? Yeah. Um, you know, I've you know, I read your piece on the seven guardrails of democracy. Uh, I'm reading Nixon Nillin right now, and a lot of this seems pretty similar. So if you could share some some of the causes you've seen and, and maybe talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I think the, um, uh, the master causes of trouble in this, in this, of this new situation, and we always have troubles, by yeah. the way, so we do, but this new situation are, are the following. Uh, the first is the slowdown of economic growth since the year 2000. There's less to go around. Um, the next is the aging of the baby boom, which means that uh, the people who are now in their 60s are arriving at the point where they're gonna make the biggest claims on the state at exactly the moment when they feel there is less to go around. And so much of, of the Tea Party and things like that should be seen as um, the baby boomers or the white baby boomers, they're sort of their last hurrah of their role in politics, making a politics of group generational assertion of their claims on the state. Um, uh, immigration um, and rising ethnic diversity, um, which is always difficult to manage and which governing elites have tended to think should is easy to manage, um, is automatically managed. I think the end of the Cold War, um, which has destroyed a lot of the, the best habits of American elites, um, of, especially in Congress of give and take because the country was engaged in, um, in a generational, in, in this kind of epic struggle. Um, and, and then this, um, and it, it's not driven by the economy, it's connected by this kind of cultural collapse in the face of globalization in the middle of the country, um, which has left people gripped by a despair and looking for solutions. The best description I've ever heard of a Trump voter is a successful person in an unsuccessful place. Uh, that, the unsuccessful people give up on politics. They, they, don't, they don't believe they can make a difference. But imagine like the vi vice president of the high school, the vice principal of the high school and the coach of the football team in a small town facing deindustrialization. He believes that he can make a difference. And he believes things, he remembers that things were better and he believes that things should be better. But he sees nothing but worry around him. And he's ready to embrace extremist answers. Um, and into that steps demagogic figures, Trump in this country, other people in other countries. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for an interesting talk. The founding fathers uh, were suspicious of the pure forms of government, uh, kingship, aristocracy, democracy, um, because they thought that each of them had characteristic flaws. And the th flaw they saw in democracy is that it tends to throw up uh, populist demagogues. Um, so they, uh, they designed a system of separation of powers to control that. Uh, my question is, is it going to work? <laughs> well, they wrote a system of government, and it's been written, rewritten, and rewritten again. I, I think one of the uh, important benefits of a really close study of history is you come after a while to know these people as people you might have known in your own life. And that there's this, there's this way of talking about the, the founding generation as if they were demigods. And by the way, as if they were all one thing. People talk about the, the founders, forgetting they hated each other. Um, a couple, uh, one of them killed another. And, and, and then another one tried to hang the one who killed the other. Uh, and they, and uh, through the Civil War and it, through Reconstruction, we rewrote a lot of their system. And the New Deal, we rewrote it again. Um, 
and while we inherit the system and it's continuous, uh, that uh, the answers um, there's a um, the the answers are in us. We can't just look backwards. But I'll tell you one thing that they did anticipate um, is that there's a lot of discussion in the um, notes of James Madison about the 1787 Constitution about the risk of corruption in the presidency. They were intensely aware of this problem. Um, and uh, they had seen it. They had seen republics snuffed out in their time. In 1787, you know, um, the Polish Republic was about to be carved up. Um, they had seen um, Sweden, which had a kind of, which was a monarchy, but had a ripped apart by the intervention of foreign governments in its politics. And the thing they worried about a lot was the United States, a comparatively small and weak and poor country, with three powerful neighbors, Spain, France, and England, on the, in the Western Hemisphere. Would they try to bribe the president? And at the uh, at the, con at the convention, they talked twice about the example of Charles II, who was the king of England and Scotland in the time of the grandparents and great-grandparents of the authors of the Constitution, who took bribes from the king of France in order to allow the king of France to make war on the Netherlands without England intervening, and who surrendered land on the continent to France. And the, the Charles II example, the corrupt president in the pay of a foreign power, that is something they thought about a lot. And I think their remarks have some instruction to us because I think that is the part of where we are now that would not surprise them. It was 230 years, good run. Um, but the problem did eventually show up. I think this is the last question. I want to tell you I really enjoy your appearances on Bill Maher. Thank you very much. I, th I think you saw the last one. Uh, I thought you were very principled. Didn't you say you had voted for Hillary? And I, I wrote that. Um, you know, one of the things that has been a rule of mine, I, I have no illusions about how interesting or not interesting my personal thought processes are. But I do feel that when you've t taken any position in public, if you change your mind about anything, you owe the 11 people who care um, some kind of account of why you've done it. So, so um, I, I, wrote, I did vote for Hillary. Um, it was a difficult thing to do. I, I, was actually, I was not in DC on election day. I cast an absentee ballot. You get it in the mail, and I filled it out, and then it sat in my outbox for about five days um, <laughs> as I hesitated. Um, but in the end, I believe, you know, I have a lot, I, I have a lot of problems with her. Um, I, maybe others do too. But I believed in the end um, two things about her. Uh, one was that she was a patriot. Um, and the other was um, that she would, she, she knew the job. Because one, one of the things I've really come to believe is there's such a thing as being good at the job of president, independent of whether you're delivering the right answers. Um, just do you have the ability to run a meeting where you make sure that the, the most junior and least important person at the meeting always talks first? Do you know that? Um, do you know how to manage the staff process? Do you know who to, how, to, how to staff an administration? So I believe she knew all of those things. Um, and I also believed, and this is one thing that I try to impart to my conservative friends, one of the habits of mind of people on the right is the belief that we are always five minutes from midnight on the tipping point. Um, Paul Ryan gave that speech. And I believe politics never ends. Uh, and when you lose, it's, it's the setup to the time you win. And when you win, it's the setup to the time you lose. Um, and that you have to play for the, the long game. And the belief, and what threatens democracies maybe almost more than anything else, is the belief that this moment of decision is so important that anything, anything you can do to win is worth doing because you will never get another chance. And we have to preserve the system, which makes sure there's always another chance. And that, you know, in a, under a president you don't like, your president, your rights are still protected. And under a president I don't like, my rights are still protected. And that we can continue to follow these rules together um, for decades and centuries. 
Thank you. So, well, I'm making. You're going to give a follow-up? Well, I, I didn't really ask the question. Okay. I just. I thought that was the question. I'm sorry. All right, sorry. I I, I don't uh, mean this to be patronizing, but why are you a Republican? What attracted you to 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 conservative principles? Okay, that's a good. Way I, I'm not putting the. I'm not, I'm not saying you can't be principled, yeah. but okay. You don't seem like your average Republican. Um. Well, I'm a pretty weird dude, generally, so. <laughs> um, but uh, why am I a Republican? Um, first, on the core question of, I mean, I, uh, are you someone who has more to lose from politics than to gain? I'm that person. Um, do, are you someone who is in the, are you concerned with markets and business and private property? That, that, that's me. Uh, do you want to see the private sector bigger and the public sector smaller? Yes. Um, if I, as I said, if I live in California, I'd be a, a very enthusiastic supporter of the Republican Party of California against a Democratic Party that I think costs too much. Um, but one other thing that, I, and why I'm especially Republican now, because these are, like, they're proud, in any, the history of any pr party, they're prouder and less proud moments. And like there's 1864 up here, and there's 2016 down here. Um, uh, but a political system doesn't work very well if there's one party committed to democratic norms and only one party. You need two, and I think that those of us who believe in both conservatism and democracy are more needed than ever inside the Republican Party. And you should run to where the trouble is, not away from where the trouble is. I think that's true. Okay. And that's it. Thank you all. We actually have one one final question. Oh, I'm sorry. I bungled that. Um, this is a follow-up to a previous question tonight, a concern about religious fundamentalism and its influence on America. I share that concern very much, and I don't like the way religious fundamentalism is emerging in politics. Um, I don't like the granting of religious freedom to corporations or to freedom of speech for corporations, especially with political financing. Um, I really don't care for so-called self-appointed religious evangelicals supporting a child molester, wackadoodle judge in Alabama. All right. I, I get let me say, I'm really interested in what you think about if you could assess the move currently underway and gathering steam of religious fundamentalist Christian Sharia law. Okay. Okay. Well, let me say um, you're, you're in for a treat because you have now in office the least religious president in American history uh, running an administration in a White House that is less hung up on religious morality, um, then uh, they do everything. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Uh, uh, you know, I, when Hillary Clinton was asked that question of the debate, is there anything good you can say about Donald Trump? Um, her, she answered, um, I like the way he raised his kids, which is an answer she might want to take back or rethink. Um, but here's the thing I can say that, that, that is good about Donald Trump, is that he's not a hypocrite that he never pretended to be a good man. He's not a good man. He doesn't pretend to be otherwise. Um, and he doesn't pretend, I mean, there are people who around him who will tell you that he's religious. He's so obviously not. Um, but here's the thing that is happening in the Trump years, and I think Trump himself is going to accelerate this, that in the 1990s, if you surveyed American religious attitudes, you saw a country that was dramatically more religious 
than any other developed country. I mean, Americans, 90% or whatever it was, believed in God, believed in life after death. Huge, huge, uh, huge, overwhelming, almost unanimity uh, answering be religious beliefs. Then when you observed religious practice, what you just saw was a country that didn't look that different from other developed countries, where if you looked at how many people went to church or other behaviors, uh, there's this huge gap between what Americans said and what Americans did. And in the 21st century, that gap began to close, and close very, very fast. And you saw this huge increase in Americans who said they had no religion. You didn't see a decline in Americans going to church. That it was that a lot of people who had been sort of weakly religious before, or identified as religious without doing it, stopped doing so. And I, I think that trend, I, I'm guessing that people like Roy Moore and the attitude of evangelicals to Donald Trump may probably accelerate that, um, and that you're going to see a more avowedly secular country in the future. Whether that's a good thing or not, however, I, I really have to question, because um, religious faith as a way of um, guiding individual behavior um, is, a is the most powerful tool we've ever, we talked, I talked with a gentleman who asked a question about Islam, about religion as an ability to bring out the bad. It's also a force that can bring out the good when we wish it. And when we lose it, and we are losing it fast, um, I, I think we're going to lose something, something precious. Um, and uh, that religious people, I think one of the ways that younger evangelicals will speak about their, about the, the Grahams and the Falwells is that they have failed them, is that they have seen religion as a system of political power and not as an inspiration toward greater goodness and kindness in, in human beings. I'll pass that along to the people at my church. <laughs> <laughs> Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.